My experience with the Bible over these many years and extensive exposure via internet and email correspondence to the troublesome issues that currently divide and fragment believers teach me this. Distorted versions of the faith provide subtle, insidious opposition to biblical truth. I want to take these minutes, firstly, to confirm the extraordinarily valuable insights of Abrahamic people, certainly not to induce a sense of complacency, but to keep us all alert to the task we have been given. And secondly, to expose the systematic mistakes which seem to underlie so much popular theology, which is driven by theological leadership in high places. I will deal with the two major centers of interest. Who is the real Jesus? And what is the real gospel? In other words, what is the real Christianity? And what is the authentic way to salvation and immortality? To make my point as vividly as possible, I propose to quote briefly from the standard work which represents so-called evangelicalism, especially in the USA. I will let evangelicalism tell its own story in its own words. And these words will come from Dr. Charles Swindoll's and Roy Zuck's 1,500-page tome called Understanding Christian Theology, written in 2003. What these people write underlies the thinking, conscious or unconscious, of millions of those who enter church Sunday by Sunday. Obviously, I must not unfairly lead you as witnesses to agree with my reactions to what I read, because you are the ones to judge, remembering, of course, that we all have the duty to be teaching. You remember the quote in Hebrews 5, verse 12, in view of the time you ought to be teachers. We are to be teachers in some capacity, Teachers, that is, of the way to salvation through the real God and the real Jesus and the real gospel. And those who make some claim to be teachers, in a more formal sense, will receive a tougher judgment, according to James 3 verse 1. We cannot afford not to be properly informed, and this takes constant study and meditation. The virgins who had lamps but had no oil seem to be those who, though equipped with the gospel of the kingdom, which is the lamp as Jesus earlier defined it in Luke 8.16, nevertheless they did not have active working lamps. They had run out of oil, perhaps we might say. They had run out of steam. They had become inactive Christians. Someone spoke of the yawning church, a dangerous place to be in view of the stringent requirements laid on us by Jesus who spoke of the need to give out in the same measure 
as we have received. Mark chapter 4, verse 24. I remember too that Jesus said to the young man, Let the dead bury the dead, but you get out there and preach the gospel of the kingdom everywhere. Luke 9, verse 60. I wonder if we have become desensitized to the urgency of Jesus' words. The evangelical version of Jesus. So here's what the top men in the evangelical world are saying about Jesus. The discussion is about the angel of the Lord. The evidence seems to support overwhelmingly the view that the angel of the Lord was none other than the pre-incarnate Son of God. If this can be established, it means that centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he walked on earth, manifesting himself as a ministering angel. True, the New Testament nowhere states that Jesus of Nazareth was the angel of the Lord of the Old Testament times. Yet many things point to that conclusion. Now note how that conclusion is reached. Christ, they say, is the eternal Son of God. Christ has existed eternally as the Son of God. Though no specific verse states this truth precisely that way, the evidence pointing in that direction is overwhelming. Whenever the title is used of him, as to say, of the Son of God, it speaks of his divine essence. His fierce critics, the Jewish religious leaders, did not fail to make the connection between his repeated claims that God was his Father and his claim for deity that he is equal with God the Father. John 5, verse 18, John 10, verses 30 to 48, and John 20, verses 28 to 31. When the title Son of God is used of Christ, it has nothing to do with his birth to Mary. That's on page 570 of the Tome on Understanding Christian Theology. But I ask, has the author read Luke 1.35, where Luke presents the hero of his amazing two-volume work as Son of God precisely because of, the Greek there, vioke, precisely because of his virginal begetting. Now here's what Swindoll says again, as the Son of God, he was not born, he was given. That is precisely what the prophet Isaiah said of him, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, Isaiah 9 verse 6. The term Son of God refers to Christ's eternal relationship to the Father, he was born as a child to Mary. At the time of creation, the Son of God already existed. In fact, he had a vital part in it. Colossians 1, 
16 to 17, Hebrews 1, verse 2. Christ, the Son of God, is described as being in the Father's bosom. John 1, verse 18, 1 John 1, 1 to 3. Thus, the Son of God is as eternal as God the Father. Also, the fact that God the Father sent the Son into the world, Isaiah 9, verse 6, John 3, 16, John 10, 21, Romans 8, 32, Galatians 4, verse 4, and 1 John 4, verses 10 and 14. These verses point to Jesus' pre-existence. The terms firstborn and only begotten describe Christ's eternal relationship to the Father. Firstborn speaks of Christ's priority, preeminence, dignity, rank, and position as the Son of God, and only begotten describes Christ's uniqueness. He is the one and only one of a kind, Son of God. John F. Walford gives an excellent summary of the biblical teaching on Christ's eternal sonship. But his appeal, please note, is to the creeds. John Walford says the scriptural view of the sonship of Christ, as recognized in many of the great creeds of the church, is that Christ was always the Son of God by eternal generation, and that he took upon himself humanity through generation of the Holy Spirit. The human birth was not in order to become a Son of God, but because he was the Son of God. Therefore, since he existed from eternity, it should be no surprise that Christ appeared in the Old Testament. What is the saving Christian gospel according to evangelicals? Now we turn to the all-important matter of getting the definition of the saving gospel right. Nothing can be more disastrous, Paul said, than adding to or subtracting from the gospel. Galatians 1 verses 6 to 9. Distorted gospels called forth Paul's most powerful words of condemnation. If a depleted gospel is presented, we offer people salvation on a false basis and so trick them into not being saved when they think that they are being saved. This leads to the shattering disappointment spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. So what does evangelicalism have to say on this subject of the gospel? From the same evangelical quarter, we have this from their section on what is the gospel. This question really amounts to what is Christianity or how do we achieve salvation? We read this. The word gospel Evangelion means good news. It is sometimes used in a non-religious sense, as in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, and I quote, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love. But the major use 
of Evangelion, gospel, is with a religious connotation. When used in this way, what was the good news about? The New Testament uses the word in two ways. Firstly, of the good tidings of the kingdom of God and of salvation through Christ, citing there the Greek lexicon of Abbott and Smith, page 184. In the Gospels, Evangelion is used by only Matthew and Mark, and in all but one instance, Matthew wrote of Evangelion as the Gospel of the Kingdom, which the prophets foretold and Jesus preached, according to Matthew 4, verse 23, and Matthew 9, verse 35. This was also the message of John the Baptist, as in Matthew 3, verse 1. And of the twelve apostles, when they were first sent out by our Lord Jesus, Matthew 10, verses 5 to 7. His covenant people, Israel, refused to repent and meet the spiritual conditions of the kingdom, and they rejected Christ as king at his first coming. According to Matthew 11 and 12 and John 1, 11. But at the end of the yet future seven-year tribulation, mentioned in Daniel 12, verse 1, Christ will again return to earth and present himself to Israel as both Messiah and King. Even at the end of his ministry, therefore, when Jesus warned of the coming terrible destruction in the Great Tribulation, he announced that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. Matthew 24, verse 14. Then Swindoll segues to the following. He gives his own definition of the gospel by referring to Mary's anointing of Christ for his coming death and burial. And he says that this event introduces the theme that is predominant in the epistles and especially the Pauline writings. Watch how the gospel of Jesus about the kingdom, I say, is about to slip away. Without further comment, Swindoll says, what was the content of the good news that especially Paul was commissioned to present? Note the unnoticed loss of Jesus and his gospel. Paul, Swindoll goes on to say, stated this clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 3 to 5, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul was, and I quote, separated to the gospel of God concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 1, verses 1 to 3. At the end of his third missionary journey, Paul told the elders of the church at Ephesus that his ministry was to testify to the gospel evangelion of the grace of God. End quotation. 
referring there to Acts 20, verse 24. Now, do you see what's happened here? I want to sound the alert. The gospel has been cut into two. First, the author has twisted the lexicon's definition of the gospel. The lexicon said that the gospel was the good tidings of the kingdom of God and salvation through Christ. The lexicon, of course, intended this definition as a single whole. The kingdom of God being included in salvation through Jesus. But evangelicals spoke of, quote, two ways of salvation. Against this very unfair treatment of the gospel, the Abrahamic movement was founded in the 1850s. We need constantly to be reminded of this fundamental fact, lest we lose a sense of identity, which, as we all know, is a sign of complete collapse. Evangelicalism made the point that Paul summarized his career as one of preaching the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20, verse 24. But astonishingly, the writer did not bother or care to give you the next verse. There Paul defines the content of the gospel of grace as identical with the preaching of the kingdom of God. It is that verse which ought to shake the evangelical system at its foundation and lead to the realization that their gospel teaching, though not expressing it this way, says in effect, don't listen to Jesus for your gospel, listen to Paul. I suggest that this is the disaster against which Jesus warned over and over again. Jesus said, he who believes my words, Jesus said, he who is ashamed of me and my words, my gospel, see Mark chapter 8, verses 35 to 38, such a person is going to be terribly disappointed when I return. And in 2 John 7 to 9, whoever does not bring the teaching of Christ is to be rejected as dangerous. Equally emphatically from Paul, who said, if anyone does not bring the health-giving words of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul goes on to condemn such persons as ignorant and dangerous. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 4. Evangelicalism goes on to fire warning salvos against anyone who would dare to add to the simple gospel that Jesus died and rose. I fear that they are warning us against listening carefully to Jesus and his gospel of the kingdom. Of course, they will also make it quite clear that without the Trinity, anything we say will be automatically flawed. Evangelicalism is a formidable foe. Again, do you see what has happened here? You're supposed to gather from the evangelical quarter that the gospel of the kingdom was preached by Jesus only to Jews and is not for us now. The idea is 
that Israel refused that gospel of the kingdom. And so God then adopted plan B by going to the Gentiles with the gospel of grace. That's to say, Jesus died and rose. That gospel of the grace of God, they carefully do not call another gospel, but rather another form of the same gospel. You'll find that in Ango's Dictionary of the Bible under the article Gospel. And that another form of the same gospel leaves the brain in a fog. The technique is like the title on the Book of Mormon, Another Gospel of Jesus Christ. Or is it really a gospel of another Jesus Christ? I think this evangelical account of Christianity is systematically mistaken. First of all, Israel did not entirely refuse the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus found 12 good men and many more, including wonderfully faithful women, many of whom helped the mission out of their own resources, who did indeed repent by responding to Jesus' gospel about the kingdom. Mark 1, verses 14 to 15. These were the apostles who are, not just were, the foundation of the church. Their kingdom of God gospel is the gospel as Jesus preached it. And to remove it from the church is to blast away at the foundation of the faith not to define the gospel as Jesus defined it, is to attach oneself to another Jesus, the very thing which Jesus and Paul warned against. Jesus without his gospel is not really Jesus. Jesus without the gospel of the kingdom, which drove his mission, according to Luke 4 verse 43, is a Jesus floating free of his own words and his great commission in which he commanded his followers to take his own gospel of the kingdom the very same gospel as he had offered to jews to take this to the whole world and go on doing it uninterruptedly until the end of the age we find that in the great commission in matthew 28 we see Paul doing just that in Acts 19, verse 8, where he was arguing and persuading from Scripture, according to Acts 20, verses 24 and 25, and Acts 28, verses 23, and verses 30 and 31. In that final verse, Paul is seen, and I quote, welcoming the people, and speaking about the kingdom. Is this some novel gospel of Paul? Hardly. Jesus was the model for Paul's tireless activity. Jesus likewise welcomed the people and began speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke 9 verse 11. Is not Luke taking his stand against this amazingly confusing gospel system of modern evangelicalism? F.F. F. Bruce to the rescue. 
the evangelical cutting of the gospel in two and then losing half of it has deceived a lot of churchgoers. I discovered very recently that F. F. Bruce, who was gracious enough to correspond with me on these great topics many years ago, was hot on the trail of the evangelical confusion over the gospel, and he did his best to expose it. Here's Bruce under the title, The Gospel to be Preached. Make disciples of all the nations, said the Lord. The paraphrase in the Markan appendix makes it clear how this was to be done. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. Mark 16, verse 15. By obeying this command, the disciples would fulfill his own prophecy, which said the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Mark 13, verse 10. Or in the amplified form of Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. No reasonable exegesis can divorce these sayings from one another. And the apostles proceeded to make disciples of all the nations by preaching the gospel of the kingdom to them. According to Acts, Philip in Samaria preached, quote, good tidings concerning the kingdom of God, Acts 8.12. Paul at Ephesus reasoned persuasively as to the things concerning the kingdom of God, Acts 19, verse 8, or, as he said himself in Acts 20, verse 25, he went about preaching the kingdom, while later at Rome he expanded the gospel to the Jews, testifying the kingdom of God, Acts 28, verse 23, and in his lodging he received all who went into him preaching the kingdom of God. Acts 28, verses 30 and following. A comparison of verse 24 and 25 of Acts 20 shows that to testify the gospel of the grace of God refers to the same activity as preaching the kingdom. In the light of these and other scriptures, it's difficult to accept a certain brand of dispensational teaching which makes a clear-cut distinction between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the grace of God. The only good news that God has to offer men is of salvation by his grace alone, to be received through faith in Christ alone, by the new birth, which accompanies the acceptance of this salvation, a man enters the kingdom, according to John 3, verses 3 and 5, and compare with that Matthew 18, verse 3. And so this gospel is equally 
the good news of the kingdom and of the grace of God. Upon the preacher of any other gospel except this one, a solemn anathema is pronounced in Galatians 1, verses 8 and following. Yet the Schofield Bible, the most popular compendium of this dispensationalist teaching, as to say of making the gospel of grace different from the gospel of the kingdom, that Schofield Bible tells us that Matthew 24, 14 has specific reference to the proclamation of the good news that the kingdom is again at hand by the Jewish remnant. For illumination, we turn to Schofield's note on Revelation 14, verse 6, where four forms of the gospel are distinguished. One, the gospel of the kingdom. Two, the gospel of the grace of God. Three, the everlasting gospel, Revelation 14, verse 6. And four, that which Paul calls my gospel in Romans 2.16 and Romans 16.25. The first of these, we are told, and I quote, is the good news that God purposes to set up on the earth in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, a kingdom, political, spiritual, Israelitish, and universal. This gospel was preached in the past by John the Baptist, our Lord, and his disciples until the Jewish rejection of the king. The preaching of this gospel of the kingdom will be resumed in the future, during the Great Tribulation, and immediately preceding the coming of the king in glory. That's to say, an earthly restored Davidic kingdom was offered to the Jews who rejected the offer and crucified the king. But those who teach this seldom face the question, what if they had accepted the offer? If they do and preserve consistency, they must consent to the conclusion of one of the less orthodox of their number that and I quote, there is no cross in God's plan of atonement. That is, had the Jews accepted their king, they would have proceeded at once to the evangelization of the world, which would have received the promised blessing without any cross. Fortunately, the great majority of dispensationalists see that such an argument undermines the whole of Christianity and they refuse to go so far. The earthly kingdom, evangelicals tell us, will again be preached by a faithful Jewish remnant, which in the course of a few short years, during a time of unparalleled persecution, will accomplish more in the evangelizing of the world than has been accomplished by the Christian church in well nigh 2,000 years. For any plain scripture giving clear evidence of the evangelistic activity of this Jewish remnant, we look in vain. 
F.F. Bruce continued, But the evangelizing of the world, which Christ said must precede the coming of the end, is not the business of the church. We are told that is wrongly by evangelicals. For the divine purpose for this age, we are referred to Acts 15, verse 14, dispensationally the most important passage in the New Testament. So says the Schofield Bible. In this verse, James is simply referring to Peter's account of the conversion of the Gentile Cornelius. By blessing this Roman centurion with his salvation, God, and I quote, did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. The emphasis is on Gentiles. Gentiles, that is, in addition to Jews. James stated nothing new. The Lord had already spoken of other sheep, not of this fold, which were to be united with the obedient sheep of the Jewish fold, so that all who heard his voice, both Jews and Gentiles, might together form one flock. John 10 verse 16. We must not confound the evangelization of the world with the conversion of the world. It is the church's responsibility to evangelize the world by preaching the gospel to all the nations. To convert all the nations lies beyond her power. To preserve the balance of truth, we must not exalt Acts 15 verse 14 above Matthew 28 verses 18 and following. Dispensationally, that is, as giving the divine purpose for the present age, our Lord's commission to his church is surely at least as important as the words of James, if not more so. It is as the church fulfills the terms of the commission by preaching the gospel to the nations that God takes out of them a people for his name. It is the word which make disciples of all the nations. Literally, a command, disciple all the nations. And this cannot mean that nations as nations are all going to become Christian. Primarily, it is individuals and not communities that are to be converted. There is no such thing as a, quote, social gospel, apart from the redemption of the individual. The fundamental question is, what must I do to be saved? So also, in what is misleadingly called the judgment of the nations, in Matthew 25, verses 31 and following, those who are gathered as nations are separated and judged as individuals. He shall separate them, Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 32, and that is on a par with baptizing them and teaching them in Matthew 28, verses 19 and following. In each case, them represents the masculine aftus, individual persons, not the neuter, afta, 
which we would have expected had whole nations, which are neuter, been separated as such in the one place or baptized and taught as such in the other. In all nations, as the gospel is preached to them, there are some who believe and some who do not believe. As we read the words teaching them to observe everything I commanded you, we naturally think of the Lord's words recorded in this gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, the parables of the kingdom, all the teaching which shows how those who belong to his realm should regulate their lives. Surely it is for want of applying these principles to practical life that we, even we who profess and call ourselves Christians, find ourselves in such a desperate impasse today. These are the lessons which, if learned and practiced, provide a secure foundation for life, whether of men or nations. Where they are neglected, ruin is as certain as to a house which, built on the foundation of sand, is exposed to the rage of wind and wave. But we are reminded that all this body of sublime teaching is not for Christians of this age, but for a hypothetical Jewish remnant of a future day. The standard's too high for us to reach in our hours of ease will be attained by them in days of unprecedented trial. And so some of the greatest passages of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer, the Kingdom Parables, the Little Apocalypse, all find their way to the Jewish wastebasket. There is but one logical consequence. The Great Commission must go the same way. And while most teachers of this school stop short of this consequence, some clear-sighted and logical do take this step. Thus, for example, the late Sir Robert Anderson, while allowing what he calls an intermediate fulfillment for the commission in the present age, proceeds to argue, and this is a quotation from Sir Robert Anderson, that prophetically the commission belongs to the age when the church of this dispensation shall have passed to heaven, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. And when the true remnant of Israel, the all Israel of Romans 11, 26, compare with that Romans 9, verses 6 and 27, typified by the 500 brethren who gathered round the Lord upon the mountain, they will be missionaries to the world. That would be the logical consequence, certainly. But Euclid had a method of carrying a hypothesis to its logical consequence, which is known as the reductio ad absurdum, and the reader may well feel that in such an argument as that contained in this last quotation from Sir Robert Anderson, we have the reductio ad absurdum. 
of this dispensational theory with its remnant hypothesis. When the disciples heard the Sermon on the Mount, the Kingdom parables, the apocalyptic discourse of Matthew 24, or the commission which we are considering, did they receive from the Lord the slightest indication that he was then addressing them not as representatives of that church which he told them he was going to build, but as representatives of a Jewish remnant to arise on a far distant day. And what indication have we, apart from a very precarious hypothesis, proved by no certain warranty of Holy Scripture, that as we in our turn read those wonderful words, are we given the slightest idea that we are not to apply them to ourselves, but to others of a future day, who, while enjoying far fewer privileges than we do, must shoulder the far weightier responsibilities than ours? None. And as for the hypothetical remnant, the following description of it reduces it ad absurdum as effectively as words can. Alexander Rees is rightly critical of this theory. He says, The two-headed, two-tongued monstrosity in Israel and Christendom at the end time which is a half-converted, half-Christian Jewish remnant, which at one and the same time evangelizes the nations and invokes the curses of heaven upon them, which cleaves to the imprecatory psalms and uses the Lord's Prayer, some of the Beatitudes, and the missionary commission of Matthew 28, which knows nothing of present peace, forgiveness and deliverance, and converts untold millions to Christ, which is sealed against death and has many thousands of martyrs who are so fortunate as to enter heaven and attain the highest blessings, which is nebulous in its knowledge of full salvation and becomes nursing father to the glorious Martyrs of Revelation, chapter 7, end of quotation. Fortunately, if the remnant exegesis of Matthew 28 is the logical result of the remnant exegesis of the earlier parts of this gospel, the converse is also true. If the Great Commission was given to the Church, and the Church has never been more worthy of her calling, then when acting upon this commission, then the earlier parts of Matthew are also intended for the church and are to be taught as part of the all things commanded by the Lord. And we say, of course, Amen to that. Finally, Bruce makes our Abrahamic point to distinguish the gospel of the grace of God from what Paul calls my gospel is indeed a tour de force. For Paul's insistence is that he and the other apostles 
preached the same gospel. See 1 Corinthians 15 verse 11. All this from F.F. Bruce may be a bit of a mouthful, but the substance of Bruce's excellent insight is the Abrahamic point. The rationale really for a new denomination. Dispensationalism, which underlies more or less explicitly today's popular form of the gospel of Christianity, is to be guarded against. The theory proposes that the gospel as Jesus preached it is not for us at all. It was for Jews in the past and will be for Jews in the future after the so-called pre-tribulation rapture. But the pre-trib rapture is itself only another misleading byproduct of the dispensationalist scheme. By taking the words of Christ from us and applying them only to Jews, dispensationalism tells the public that the clear words about when the Christians are to be gathered to Jesus, as to say immediately after or post the tribulation of those days, Matthew 24:29-31, those words are not really for Christians. Rather, they should listen to Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and many others and believe that they will not be on earth during the Great Tribulation. As always in theology, one mistake produces another. The whole concept that Christianity is not based on Christ is, I suggest, a national disaster. Closely allied to the flimsy gospel of evangelicalism is the related idea that repentance is a work and thus not to be included in the gospel. This theory would of course rule out the gospel of Jesus for Christians. The entire Christianity of Jesus is neatly summarized by Mark in his brilliant opening statement about the faith. Jesus came heralding God's gospel about the kingdom being at hand and commanding, repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. This is the summation of biblical Christianity and the parable of the sower expands on that kingdom gospel and makes the seed gospel message of the kingdom the germ of immortality. I note the very excellent teaching method of scripture. First present a summary thesis statement and then so to speak, unpack it in more detail, progressively shedding more and more light and fine-tuning our understanding in the process. This is a very good way to impart learning. Just as the cells in our body create energy from oxygen and food, 
Our spiritual cells are fed and energized by the pure words of Jesus and the apostles. But what happens when the spiritual food chain is polluted and deprived of life-imparting nutrients? The creative word of the kingdom, Matthew 13, 19, typified by God's creative act in the old creation where God said, this becomes in the new the spark of immortality sown in our minds. The word of the kingdom, Matthew 13, 19, contains within it the reality of the life of the age to come. Kingdom life. So lucid is Jesus on the necessity for the reception of the kingdom of God gospel that he makes repentance and forgiveness conditional upon the intelligent reception of the kingdom of God gospel. You'll find that in Mark chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. The devil is so cognizant of the dramatic and dynamic effects of the kingdom word and gospel and its energy, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, that he, the devil, is intent on snatching that kingdom gospel away from the mind of the potential believers so that, and I'm quoting here, they cannot believe it and be saved. Luke 8 verse 12. We remember Luke's favorite theme about believing. Zechariah was struck dumb for over nine months, during which time his wife was pregnant, and Zechariah's failure was failure to believe what God had said to him through Gabriel. Mary, on the other hand, demonstrated faith, real belief, by joyfully accepting and pondering the words of God through Gabriel. Zechariah 7 verse 12 had warned that failure to believe the word of God sent via the Spirit through the prophets was the cause of all problems. And so it is today. What then does evangelicalism have to say about repentance? From the section devoted to repentance and salvation, we read this. In the gospel debate, repentance is a hot topic. Must a person repent to be saved? I wrote my doctoral dissertation on this very issue. So says Earl Radmacher, the author of this part of Swindoll and Zuck's book, Understanding Christian Theology. Repentance says Earl Radmacher, is not faith in Christ or a necessary precursor to that. Since repentance is not in John's Gospel, it isn't a condition for salvation. The word repentance is not found in John's Gospel. Yet the fourth Gospel is the only book in all of Scripture whose stated purpose is evangelistic, that is, to tell unbelievers what they must do to have eternal life. John 20, verse 31. And I say, what? 
Therefore, O Radmacher goes on, it is extremely telling that the words repent and repentance do not occur in John's Gospel. This shows that repentance is not a synonym for faith in Christ and that it is not a necessary precursor to faith in Christ. If either were the case, the book on evangelism would have had so. That's pages 938-939 in Swindoll and Zuck's book, Understanding Christian Theology. Then this amazing conclusion. When John is writing to tell people what they must do to have eternal life, and he doesn't even mention repentance, a subject he was very familiar with, and one he was even commanded by our Lord to proclaim, Luke 24, verse 47, the Lucan Great Commission, it is certain that repentance is not a condition of eternal life. We don't conclude, do we, that baptism and instruction and discipleship are conditions of eternal life? In the same way, the Great Commission in Luke concerns discipleship. Repentance is indeed a condition of fellowship with God, but repentance is nothing to do with salvation. That's what we find written on page 940 and 941. This is such a muddle, I say, and cries out for reform. Jesus is not so difficult. Repent and believe the gospel of God about the kingdom. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. This is Christianity's central thesis statement around which everything else revolves. I think I've said enough to show how much the Abrahamic system of salvation by believing Jesus, believing what Jesus believed and thus believing in Jesus, how much this is needed. And there's a call to action on the part of us all. We must take the light to others. Protestantism has inherited from Luther a subtle tendency to disparage the words of Jesus. Luther wrote about the book of Revelation, pontificating in 1522. Luther said this, I miss more than one thing in this book of Revelation, and this makes me hold it to be neither apostolic nor prophetic. I think of it almost as I do of the fourth book of Esdras, and can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. It's just the same as if we did not have it. And there are many far better books for us to keep. Finally, Luther said, let everyone think of the book of Revelation as his own spirit gives him to. My spirit cannot fit itself into this book. There is one sufficient reason for me not to think highly of it. Christ is not taught or known in the book of Revelation, but to teach Christ is the thing which an apostle is bound above all else to do. As he says in Acts 1, 
you shall be my witnesses. Therefore, I stick to the books which give me Christ clearly and purely. That's from Luther's preface to the New Testament, written in 1522. Luther said this also about the relative importance of the Gospels. Here's Luther's quotation. From all this, you can now judge all the books and decide among them which are the best. John's Gospel is the one tender, true, chief Gospel. Far, far to be preferred to the other three and placed high above them. So too the epistles of St. Paul and St. Peter far surpass the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In a word, St. John's Gospel and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle, are the books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary and good for you to know, even if you were never to see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, St. James's epistle is really an epistle of straw, ein Strohbrief, as compared to them, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. That's from Luther's preface to the New Testament, written in 1522. We find the legacy of this tendency to emphasize certain New Testament books to the neglect of others in Protestantism to this day. It was clear that St. Paul's writings, especially Romans and John's Gospel, were the favorites, and the books Luther liked less are too often neglected, especially Hebrews and James. Revelation is popular in some circles, particularly the dispensationists, but it is, of course, subject to countless wacko prophetic and apocalyptic scenarios. The Luther biographer Hartmann Grisard, Society of Jesus, author of a massive six-volume biography, writes as follows. Luther's criticism of the Bible proceeds along entirely subjective and arbitrary lines. The value of the sacred writings is measured by the rule of his own doctrine. He treats the venerable canon of Scripture with a liberty which annihilates all certitude. For while this list has the highest guarantee of sacred tradition and the backing of the Church, Luther makes religious sentiment the criterion by which to decide which books belong to the Bible, which are doubtful, and which are to be excluded. At the same time, he practically abandons the concept of inspiration, for he says nothing of a special illuminative activity of God in connection with the writer's composition of the sacred book. Notwithstanding that he holds the Bible to be the Word of God because its authors were sent by God. Thus his attitude towards the Bible is really burdened with 
flagrant contradictions, to use an expression of Harnack, especially since he had broken through the external authority of the written word by his critical method. And of this, Luther is guilty. The very man who elsewhere represents the Bible as the sole principle of faith. If, in addition to this, his arbitrary method of interpretation is taken into consideration, the work of destruction wrought by him appears even greater. The only weapon that Luther possessed, he snatched away from his own hand, as it were, both theoretically and in practice. His procedure regarding the sacred writings is apt to make thoughtful minds realize how great is the necessity of an infallible church as divinely appointed guardian and authentic interpreter of the Bible. And there, of course, the author is referring to the Roman Catholic Church, and we would disagree with his conclusion entirely. W.F. Aidney, D.D., Principal of Lancashire College in Manchester, said, With Luther, the Reformation was based on justification by faith. This truth Luther held to be confirmed, firstly by its necessity, nothing else availing, and secondly by its effects, since in practice it brought peace, assurance, and the new life. Then those scriptures which manifestly supported the fundamental principle were held to be ipso facto inspired, and the measure of their support of it determined the degree of their authority. Thus the doctrine of justification by faith is not accepted because it is found in the Bible, but the Bible is accepted because it contains this doctrine. Moreover, the Bible is sorted and arranged in grades according as it does so more or less clearly. And to Luther there is, and I quote, a New Testament within the New Testament, a kernel of all scripture, consisting of those books which he sees as most clearly set forth the gospel. Thus he wrote, John's gospel, the epistles of Paul, especially Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and 1 Peter, these are the books which show you Christ and teach all that is needful and blessed to know. Even if you never see or hear any other book, or any other doctrine. Therefore, the epistle of James is a mere epistle of straw, eine rechter Strohner epistle, since it has no character of the gospel in it. The passage was omitted from later editions, from this preface to New Testament in 1522. Luther places Hebrews James, Jude, and Revelation at the end of his translation after the other books, which he designates, 
and I quote, the true and capital books of the New Testament, for these have been regarded in former times in a different light. That's a quotation from the article on Luther in the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible, written in 1989. Luther at first, in his preface in translation of the New Testament, 1522, expressed a strong aversion to the book of Revelation, declaring that to him it had every mark of being neither prophetic nor apostolic. He cannot see that it was the work of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, he does not like the commands and threats which the writer makes about this book of Revelation. In Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, and the promise of blessedness to those who keep what is written. In Revelation 1, verse 3 and 22, verse 7, when Luther says, no one knows what that is, to say nothing of keeping it. And there are many nobler books to be kept. Moreover, many fathers rejected the book. Luther then says, finally, everyone thinks of the book of Revelation, whatever his spirit imparts. My spirit cannot adapt itself to this book, and a sufficient reason why I do not esteem it highly is that Christ is neither taught nor recognized in it, which is what an apostle ought before all things to do. Now later, in 1534, Luther finds a possibility of Christian usefulness in the book, but he still thought it a hidden, dumb prophecy, unless interpreted, and upon the interpretation no certainty had been reached after many efforts. Luther remained doubtful about its apostolicity, and in 1545, Luther printed the book of Revelation with Hebrews, James, and Jude as an appendix to his New Testament, not numbered in the index. Zwingli, a leading reformer, regarded Revelation as not a biblical book. And even Calvin, with his high view of inspiration, does not comment on 2nd and 3rd John, nor on the book of Revelation. That's from the article in Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible, Volume 4, written in 1902. Readers should reflect on the remarkable fact that the churches have continued to place considerable faith in the spiritual leadership of Calvin and Luther, despite the former's hesitancy about the apocalypse. Calvin wrote no commentary on Revelation, and the latter's apparent failure, Luther's apparent failure, to heed the warnings of Jesus given in Revelation. I read this from Revelation. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues written in the book. 
And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. That's from Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. Again, blessed is he who keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book of Revelation. Blessed is he who reads and they who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it for the time is at hand. Revelation 1 verse 3. This hardly sounds as if the book of Revelation could be safely relegated to an appendix. The book of Revelation, as is now well recognized, draws together the strands of Old Testament prophecy. It contains hundreds of allusions to and quotations from the Hebrew Bible and describes the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth at the second coming of Jesus. It is a fitting climax to the expectations of both Old and New Testament, depicting the triumph of the kingdom of God over a hostile world. Abrahamic people are charged with the ongoing process of reform so partially achieved in the 1500s. We must protest the cavalier way in which C.S. Lewis declared that the gospel is not in the gospels. We must call into question James Kennedy's statement that, and I quote, many people believe that the teachings of Jesus are most important, but that is not so. What really counts, James Kennedy said, is that God came and died for us. We must, with Bishop N.T. Wright in our time, complain that heaven is not the goal offered by Jesus. If I invite you, says the bishop, to come and have a drink with me at my home, and I store that drink in the fridge, I don't expect you to climb into the fridge to enjoy the drink. I say long live the basic, simple, messianic theology of Abrahamic people who struggle to produce a kinder and sounder form of the faith, easily demonstrable from hosts of simple, plain biblical texts. Action among us is likely to take place when we are suitably shocked, appalled, and stimulated by finding out what is being taught in the name of Jesus. When, for example, we react in stunned amazement at the word biblical commentary on Mark 12, 29-34, which says, The Shema, Jesus' affirmation of the Shema, is neither remarkable nor specifically Christian. That's from page 261 of the Word Biblical Commentary on Mark. Can you imagine a Christianity 
without the words of Jesus? Can you imagine that, surviving the judgment? Millions out there have been misled into thinking that the words of Jesus are dispensable and can be disposed of. Remember what Professor Hyas told us at one of these conferences many years ago. He said, interpreters of Christian persuasion have ordinarily not been especially interested in what Jesus intended and did in his own time. So then, Jesus' creed and Jesus' gospel, well, who cares? The bracelet WWJD, What Did Jesus Do?, ought better still to read WDJS, What Did Jesus Say? Appendix, How Not to Define the Gospel. I read here from Anger's Concise Bible Dictionary. The word gospel, the dictionary says, the word gospel means good news. The good news is addressed to lost humanity and centers in God's grace, which rescues man from sin and restores him to God's image and fellowship. The gospel was first announced when God promised Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. It was prefigured in the shed blood of the animal, which God killed, in order to clothe the naked sinners. Genesis 3 verse 21. It was symbolized year after year in the blood of the animals that were offered in the Mosaic sacrificial system. Hebrews chapter 9, 11 to 14, and verses 19 and 21. When Christ, the true sacrifice, was offered, the gospel in symbol became the gospel in reality. Hebrews 9, 11 to 15. Hebrews 10, verses 10 to 14. Sins which had previously been passed over were now instantly remitted for all those who had believed, whether before or after the cross. Romans 3, verse 25 and 26. The one human requirement for salvation is faith in God's grace revealed in Christ's death and resurrection. Romans 10, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Absolutely, says this article, absolutely no other requirement for salvation must be added or substituted. Any addition, change, or substitution corrupts the simple gospel of pure grace into another gospel, a heretical one, which God's people are instructed to denounce. Galatians 1, verses 6 to 9. This spurious gospel, says the article, may parade under various seductive forms. The test, however, is simple. Does the alleged gospel question the total sufficiency of God's grace to save, keep, 
and perfect? If it does, perhaps by recommending some kind of human striving, it is to be branded another gospel and is to be rejected outright. And I add this finally. Remarkable then that Jesus said, strive, agonize, struggle to enter into the kingdom of God.